Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 34. It's the first week of May and I'm in my fifth month in Colombia, which I just is crazy to me. I don't understand what time is. My original plan was to spend six months in Colombia because that is what a tourist visa would allow. This would mean that I would be close to the end of my time here and I'm not ready to leave. So I've applied for a work visa that will allow me more time in Colombia. If you want to see progress of the mill we are building here and a video of what a typical work day is like for me, you can find all of that on patreon.com slash making coffee. This is a listener supported podcast, no ads, no sponsors, nothing external to subsidize the cost and time that it takes to put this together. This exists because listeners like you show me that you want it to exist by joining Patreon. You can join for as little as $3 per month. Think of it like buying me a coffee if you enjoy these episodes. So speaking of which, let's get to today's episode. This is another in a series hearing from coffee producers from all parts of the world. In episodes 9 and 13, we hear from Giancarlo and Sofia of Mapache about why they grow coffee in El Salvador. In episode 27, we hear from Mark from Finca Rosenheim in Peru and learn about how he sees his future in coffee. In episode 29, we hear from Donna of the Coffee Gardens, producers in Uganda about their startup venture. In episode 33, we hear the questions and concerns of growing coffee in Thailand from Dr. Mack. And today, we get to visit India through the eyes of Pranoy. I think one of the common traps we can get into is thinking and talking about the coffee farmer, or the average coffee farmer, as if coffee farmers are a monolith. The average doesn't exist. The people who grow and produce coffee are a very diverse group who do it for different reasons in very different conditions. It's our nature when we learn something new to compare it to what we already know. We learn by grouping and recognizing patterns and assigning categories. We take large amounts of information and shrink it and distill it until it's a small enough unit that we can attach a label. My hope with these episodes is to take a microscope to the group, to get to know the individuals, how they think, and what they think about. Pernoy is a fifth-generation coffee grower. His family got into the business in 1953, where they have grown different produce in biodiverse, multi-cropped conditions. Welcome to Kerehaklu, which means shelter by the lake. Pernoy paints a picture of 400-year-old fig trees providing shade, coffee trees planted next to avocados and jackfruit, pickers climbing 60-degree inclines to harvest coffee, and thunderstorms, so many thunderstorms in the middle of harvest. You'll find that Pernoy is a curious individual who is looking to microbes to help him tell a story with his coffee. Since I am a huge fan of microbes for coffee quality, he wanted to ask me what I thought about a few techniques like adding other tropical fruit to the coffee tanks and using mechanical dryers for naturals. He really challenged me in this session. He pushed me to the limits of how I use microbes in coffee. And I wanted to share it with you guys because I think it's important to know our edges. I wanted to share the limits of what I know so that perhaps anyone listening can take it further, and maybe many of you listening already have. I want to hand off the task to one of you to keep going and figure out what we don't know, and then to tell us about it. I do want to mention you might notice that the audio is different than other episodes. 
There are obvious difficulties recording a podcast when one person is in a remote mountaintop in Colombia and the other person is in a remote coffee town in India. We are over 10,000 miles apart and have a 10 and a half hour time difference. Halfway through the conversation, Pernoy lost power and we lost our recording. However, this isn't my first rodeo and we both had backup recordings. He was recording himself on his iPhone and I was recording on my computer. Fortunately, the conversation was saved, but because we were stitching together two different audio tracks, it took several hours to edit together because the two tracks didn't quite sync up because of the time delay. It took several hours of work for my partner and editor Nick to sort out the tracks and get them to fit, and I'm so grateful I've married a patient guy. So, let's get started, and I'll see you again on the other side. Hi! Hi, how's it going? <laughs> Good, I'm so sorry to have to... Uh... To had to change, and I'm really glad you told me your situation and we could make this work. No, it's all good. I'm glad it worked out as well. So tell me, you when you say you have to drive into the city, do you mean Bangalore? Where are you? No, so the town of Chikmagalur, which is like a big, um, the biggest coffee growing area of India. Um, we're still, we're, we're a part of it, we're part of the district, but we're a 45 minute drive away from the town itself. So we're um, fairly isolated in that sense, but um, it's kind of nice. It makes it interesting in a way. Cool. So before we get started, let's do a little bit of background into your situation in India. Can you tell us a little bit about, oh, and also tell me how to pronounce the name of your plantation? Because I think I always say it wrong in my head. <laughs> sure. So um, it's, if you break it up, it's quite easy. So Kere, Kere and Haklu. And uh, so three syllables. Kere Haklu. Yeah. So Kere means lake and Haklu means shelter. So shelter by the lake. It's an ancient word that's sort of not really used. We can, we can jump. It's a bit, even people over here find it a bit complex, especially like phonetically. But if you break it down, it's, it's fairly easy. But um, yeah, to answer your question, um, uh, it's since I last spoke with you, um, it's been a hell of a journey, not going to lie. I learned a lot, applied a lot, which is great. And then um, unseasonal rains, unseasonal uh, thunderstorms, actually, which threw us off completely. But we got a bit lucky because we were kind of done um, with, uh, with Arabica harvest season. And um, Robusta was just about starting. So my plans weren't thrown off too much, but it was sad to see producers if small to large scales really sort of getting hit by it in every every different way and so um and now we're dealing with a second uh what i like to think uh, not just a second wave but it's covid's back with a vengeance and it's something we're battling and yeah well i want to go back a little bit to do you mind telling us how old you are not at all i'm 26 i'll be 27 next month so this is something that was really remarkable for me when, when you reached out and when we first met was there's very few younger people getting into coffee and getting into it as deeply as you are. So can you tell us a little bit about what attracted you to coffee or kind of what your family background is that makes you want to be a young person in this very difficult industry? Sure. Yeah, no, it's um, it's been a roller coaster to say the least. And um, so I'm actually the fifth generation to be looking after the farm that we are so privileged to have. And um, so I've got a background in biology and ecology, which I studied in Australia. And so 
Um, what I actually did was when I moved back from Sydney in 2017, um, we actually grow a lot of fruits as well. And um, it was avocado season just when I got back. And um, I, in Australia, they're, like, they're crazy about avocados. And so um, I took a punt, took a chance, and I was like, you know what? Let me just see if I can sort of build a little market, a little niche for um, our fresh produce. And then uh, one thing led to another. I actually worked on a different farm in North India for with um, microgreens and exotic veg and um, all sort of, um, yeah, like beetroots and carrots and you name it, some beautiful produce. And so having taken a step away, I sort of realized the, the potential of what we've got. And then I realized that I came back thinking, oh, I'm going to be a millionaire with microgreens and make kombucha and sauerkraut and all, because he's a fermenter as well. And that's why I started thinking about fermentation. But then I realized that I got to maximize or optimize um, what I have, and that's coffee. And it's just... Um, uh, sort of setting the bar higher and higher and um, yeah, taking it from there really. So how big is the farm that you have? How much land? How many trees? What's your production? It's 270 acres, um, but we've got coffee on 200, between 205 and 210 acres and it's 70% Arabica, 30% Robusta and Liberica's, we don't really count it, it's almost negligible, but we grow a fair bit along the road. So it's not a specific area, but it's just like they serve as a boundary and I've been, I'm actually processing them now. So how important is Robusta to the Indian uh, coffee scene? Do you see yourselves, like the 30% that you have now, are you trying to increase that, decrease that? Like, is that an inherited? I think... That's been my sort of, it's funny you ask, it's been my biggest sort of uh, takeaway from um, this harvest season was uh, tackling Robusta. And I think Arabica went, not according to plan, but I knew, I sort of saw this happening. But then Robusta, I sort of, it, it, I, I'm glad at, that at early stage I was able to sort of um, figure out that they're completely different animals. They're just... Even though genetically and um, in terms of species, of course, they're different, but you're just dealing with different factors, and it's so it's it's unique. You can you look at the plant itself, and um, physiologically they're different, but then also if you look at the mucilage and so many other factors, and um, also with that comes a mental block, a bad reputation, so many things, you know. And um, I'm sort of. Glad to have had uh, a few of my dad's friends are some of the finest growers of Robusta in India and some of it, I, I think, in the world as well. And Indian Robusta is sort of going places in that sense. And so, um, yeah, I didn't want to sort of bite off more than I can chew, but I sort of decided to just step up, the start with hygiene, then fermentation, and then post-harvest processing. And so this year we washed our Robusta for the first time, and up until now we'd only been... Um, doing naturals and uh, I did a small batch of honeys last year which was a bit tricky but we washed a decent amount of Robusta this year as well. That's really interesting. So for Robusta, who is the market? Who Does it stay mostly in India or do you, are you able to export it? Honestly, there's been a decent amount of interest from Australia and I think it's primarily for espresso blends and so um, a good cup of Robusta I think now is being even from the Middle East, it's sort of 
still sort of panning out, nothing's finalized yet, but um, there's some talks and I've sent some samples over for Robusta and I think for as a roaster or as a trader on the other end, you're, you, you save a fair bit of money and I feel like if you can work with a like-minded and sort of progressive producer, you can get quite appealing and sort of complex cups of coffee with muted harshness, from what I know at least, but in saying that, it's easier said than done. Absolutely. I think Brazil is doing a lot of um, good things in, in terms of trying to change the perception and the uh, reputation of Robusta and having fine Robusta. And when I was in Sao Paulo, uh, maybe two years ago now, I went to a really beautiful coffee shop and tried some fine Robusta and it was very lovely. And so I think that it's kind of this, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the analogy, uh, like a kind of a downward spiral. Like people think that Robusta is inherently lower quality, so they ignore it or they don't pay attention to it. And then it does become lower. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think that if we could start trying to uh, treat it in a different way, not treat it like Arabica, like you say, it's such a different animal. We shouldn't be applying the same techniques. Um, and even something that you said that was really interesting was that you've had success or your, you know, your father's friends have had success by almost doing the opposite, by treating, having very short processing times, uh, shorter fermentations and doing the opposite of what they would do with Arabica have had really positive results. So I'm, I'm hopeful and I really wanted to have this conversation about Robusta just also for general audiences to say, hey, give it a try. It's not that it's inherently worse. It's that we've all just kind of ignored it. And it's just like the, the stepchild that no one wants to deal with. And I think with our uh, changing climate, it's going to become much more of an important reality for producers and I think we need to work together both as producers to treat it a little bit differently and give it more respect and kind of have its own place. And then also as consumers to not be so quick to dismiss it and not be so, you know, be a little bit more open minded, either in a blend, like you mentioned, or just on its own to just appreciate like a, a new flavor that can happen. Um, I wanted to comment on that when you mentioned that uh, they've had success with the shorter fermentation. I was thinking about that because there's kind of two areas that I think of fermentation kind of holding in, in uh, at least with Arabica. And one kind of method, one area that fermentation can go in is amplifying. It's, it's kind of turning up the volume on things that are already there. And so if Robusta tends to have more uh, a harshness or if that's more pronounced, then an extended fermentation, I could see that bringing that out even more. Like you're just turning up the volume to whatever's there. So you're just pumping up the, the the harshness or potentially some of that those bitter components. But there's also a way where I think fermentation can add new flavors that weren't necessarily there. So I think that we have to remember the context of fermentation where it's not it's not any one thing. And I don't think that a extended fermentation will always bring out the harshness and the bitterness. It's sort of if we're not paying attention or if we're not selecting our fermentation, that's the most likely outcome. But we can, I think, also select our fermentation and modify it, whether we're using different yeasts or a combination of yeast and bacteria or maybe doing a sequential that you could bring out other characters and give Robusta maybe a little bit more depth or more complexity than it would normally have. So I think that a short fermentation and short processing time is a really good like quick tip like it's it's more likely to have success but also leaving that opportunity that you know an extended 
selected fermentation could have other other opportunities. Yeah, no, on that note as well, I noticed during Arabica season in particular, actually with Robusta, some of the honeys that I did, and it's, it's very unique, Robusta, like even the spectrum of flavor profiles that you get, um, it's borderline savory, you know, like cereal-like, corn-like. Um, some of them I feel like I got wrong as well, and luckily they were just small batches of um, a varietal we call C into R, it's congensis into robusta, which is from the Congo. And um, so it's a very unique and a hardy species that we, a varietal rather, that we, that does well here. And I did a very small, I think 100 or 120 kilo, like a nice deep red honey. And so, but then when I cupped it, I cupped it um, maybe after aging for 30 days, it was salty. And it reminded me of, um, like, you know, when you're watching a movie and you get a, a tub of popcorn, at the end of the popcorn tub, like when the kernels are super salty and the powder that remains, it was like that. It was super unique. And I find that it was that, I mean, I can, I can understand why it can be unappealing in a sense, but I find it that it's just the uniqueness and the rarity of it, I feel like goes a long way. And it's sort of um, uh, an acquired taste to say the least. But um, on that note as well, with the Arabica, um, Early on in the season, we were just getting our, our wet mill sort of uh, maintained and sort of up to the mark before we started off. And um, so we ran about 200 kilos of cherries first through the pulper and then just through the washer without fermentation just to make sure um, everything was running and the choppers were aligned and things like that. And that scored really high in the cup. And um, so it's the same thing. You could, I could have done a 48-hour anoxic washed ferment, um, a, a ferment for washed, uh, the wash process. But I find that uh, certain parameters can work in your favor if you get it right. And then I think it was hygiene for me and the hygiene standards of scrubbing and making sure that you scrub every single day, that, that went a long way. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, I really like that you had that um, priority, the list of priorities is number one, hygiene, right? Because if you, I see so many people focusing on their fermentation first because that's more interesting and fun. But if you don't have your hygiene, if you don't have just a protocol to clean your tanks or to understand, um, you know, where some of these uh, roadblocks or uh, stumbling blocks are, you're really setting yourself back in your fermentation progress if you're not cleaning your tanks and thinking about the materials that you're using. So I love that you had that as a priority and then you felt like you had that under control and then you moved on to fermentation. And, um, and then you said, what's your third one post-harvest? What's your. The drying, the drying, we increased, uh, um, the surface area of the shade, uh, of the raised beds. And then, um, also what we had to dry on the ground, we actually, I just made sure I was on shade cloth. And so, Little things like that because we do produce a lot of coffee and when it's sort of the bang in the middle peak season, um, there's a lot of coffee in the yard and we're <laughs> very susceptible to rain and all kinds of things, but thankfully nothing really happened. But yeah, in that on that note as well, just making sure if I drank it on the yard and on the patio, um, it was on shade cloth for a few days at least until the mucilage, if it was a wash coffee, until the mucilage evaporated and the surface the water activity sort of stabilized in a sense and sort of then took it forward to sort of be like, okay, we're going to sort of rake it every 20 minutes, but then again, um, hygiene first. 
Cool. So you were starting with, so natural was your um, highest method. So most of your coffee you were processing was in, in a natural uh, dry process method. And then you started to play around with honeys. Are you doing any washed coffees? Yeah, so actually naturals was our robusta, but we've primarily only done um, the dry processing with, um, sorry, the wet processing, the washed arabicas for many years. And so this year as well, um, I would say about 80 or actually 75% of what we produce as specialty coffee was um, washed or wet processed arabica as well. And I am very happy, actually, it's um, going off a conversation we had early on in the season. I'm, I'm very happy with those. They're very complex cups of coffee, which I enjoy, and I think a lot of roasters have enjoyed as well. I think I get some some pushback because I really liked washed coffees, but it's not because I prefer their flavor profile. I just think about, for you as a producer, being able to pulp the coffee, ferment it for 36, 48 hours, and then go straight to drying. I, I like, especially in, in situations where you were mentioning earlier that you've had a lot of thunderstorms and in the area and makes drying really difficult. Like I am in Colombia right now and drying is very difficult. And so doing a natural process, maybe it has really great flavor, but it's just, it's just such a headache for, uh, from a production standpoint. Yeah, I agree. No, it's, I mean, there's so many factors, you know, that are taken into account. And I feel like, um, I love a good wash coffee and I feel like now what's happening, it's a trend in India now where naturally processed or dry processed coffees are the thing, they're the thing and it's not, I, they're, they're beautiful cups of coffees, I really enjoy them and I actually drink them every other morning but I find that I can get a very, the uniqueness comes out a bit more in a wash coffee as opposed to something which is kind of similar, like winey or like a red, I don't know, at least the ones I've tried over here, like a red wine sangria with like tropical fruits and things like that. But um, unless it's like top, top coffee, it's not really standing out that much. And so I think there's, I agree with you, for, maybe it's a, um, it's a personal thing, but yeah, I love a good wash coffee as well. And it, it goes with everything really for me. Well, I lured you onto the podcast by saying we could have a session and you haven't gotten to ask any questions. So now I'm open to whatever you want, want to ask me. What's going on? Sure. No, actually, it, on the, like just what we were talking about, about the natural processed coffees and something I had to battle. Um, even if there was no rain, just say there was a lot of moisture in the air and um, overcast weather. Um, fungus, fungus on the surface. And so... Something I've seen, and I, I speak with producers over Instagram now, it's kind of cool, we just talk very casually about different things, and uh, a guy in Nepal is actually doing some nanolots with um, the, the dry process, the natural process, and so, um, honestly, like, I try and avoid it um, as much as I can, but um, I find that, you know, like, maybe five or six days in, when it's lost a decent amount of moisture, and the... There, I mean, it's not ideal, of course, to have fungus on the surface, but I find that in some cases it's not necessarily bad. It's not doing too much bad to the mucilage and the bean within that. So have you dealt much with that? And what are your thoughts on that, really? You know, I think that's a, that's a really good point that we, when we see it on the surface, we think that there, it, something must automatically be wrong. And it is generally a sign of, um, like you said, very high moisture. And it's not, it's not necessarily a great sign, but it doesn't mean that all is lost. So a lot of that 
as you as you may have noticed, could just be staying on the surface because when you have the the cherries, you have many, many layers of tissue before you get to the seed. And so the seed can still be protected and sound um, and the fungus may not necessarily be lower in quality. However, it is a sign of really high moisture. And then you have uh, questions about your water activity. So I think one of the other things that you were wondering about is mechanical drying with naturals. And the thing with mechanical drying, um, which I think most people who listen to the podcast know that I'm a huge fan of mechanical drying. I'm a huge fan of machines, especially in very high humid places. And I think that that's more of a like a market perception. They're not as romantic. They're not, they don't make such a beautiful picture. So I think consumers and roasters and, and social media, um, you know, glorify raised beds because they're beautiful. But in terms of production, they're really, really uh, problematic. And so I love a good machine. Um, and I think that part of the reason why machines have gotten a bad reputation is not necessarily the machine, but again, the machine just does what we tell it. So if we're not telling it to have to do the, the right thing, if we're not giving it a good program to run, we're not going to get good results. So I think, again, we need to look at ourselves and how we're using those machines. So one, however, one of the challenges with uh, with cherries is that when you have all this mechanical equipment, having a lot of juice and having a lot of uh, wetness is problematic. So a lot of uh, in washed coffees, there's usually a step to get as much of the like external moisture off of the parchment before you go into your into your machine. With cherries, the more like a lot of the the first steps before going into a, a mechanical dryer are like a, a shaking machine, like a, a saranda that like phys- or like a centrifuge that physically forces the the surface water off of the off of the parchment. With cherries, if you did anything like that, you would just break them more and release more of the juice and you would actually maybe get more moisture kind of leaking out. Um, so I think that's problematic. I think the other thing is it's not just moisture, but the kind of moisture. So with cherries, because you have that high sugar content and you have that acid, then you're at, if you don't have a completely stainless steel piece of equipment, you're going to corrode a lot faster and damage uh, the longevity of that machine. So for naturals, what I would suggest is if you're going to use a, a mechanical uh, dryer, which I think is possible, is getting as much like drying them on the raised bed to a lower moisture content so that you don't have that wetness and then going into the machine, having that like pre-drying step before you go in. Um, I can't give you exactly what moisture content to go into, but I think you would just maybe do it more visually just to say if there's nothing like leaking out at that point, something to finish the the process. I don't love this method because it's kind of the opposite of what I would do with um, with parchment, with a washed coffee. I prefer to give it the heat in the beginning when it has the highest moisture and then back off because as the coffee is drying and the moisture content is lower, you're, it's the, the seed, the structure is more brittle. And so you're more at risk of causing some cellular damage that could eventually lead to fading. Um, and again, it's tough because that's not something you would notice right away. So like you could dry coffee this way and people cup it and they're like, this coffee's great. And I'm like, yeah, but try it in six months, you know, and it'll, it, and then it'll fall or, and now I think especially with the way 
um, this this new world is with the pandemic, people are holding on to their coffee longer or they're trying to have it in storage much longer. And so I think it may not have been a problem before, but I think it's like longevity and shelf life and storage is going to be more of an issue sort of coming up as people are not able to sell coffee as, as quickly or they just want to buy a bigger quantity and just, you know, hold it for the year. So I would say for parchment, my method is the opposite where I would go first into a mechanical dryer and drop the moisture content down to, you know, 20% as, as quickly as you can. And then I would take it out and put it on on raised beds and let it um, more slowly go down to the 12, the 10 to 12%. But with cherries, because you have all that moisture, I would first put it on the raised beds, try to get it lower so you don't have that juice kind of... Um, running out and then going into the mechanical dryer. And the other thing we talked about was, so that the cycle, um, what type of program do you run? So most people who have mechanical dryers want to take advantage of them and dry their coffee quickly, because of course, that's why you have a mechanical dryer. And so they would either run it, you know, 24 hours a day or for very long periods. Um, the way that I like to run them is to try to mimic that what the sun does. So run them for eight hours, and then turn them off at night, let the coffee homogenize, let the, the mass that's in there homogenize. And in that sense, I think a lot of people don't like that method because then the mechanical dryer is not serving its original purpose. Like you're not drying the coffee faster because you still need that rest period to let it, to let the moisture that's on the inside, you know, homogenize back out into the whole, into the whole um, batch. But you are able to dry coffee more consistently. So you can't, especially here in Colombia, we can't count on it being sunny every day. So with with the machine, we can still count, for example, count on having eight hours of, of sunlight, but it's just happening in the machine. So I think that's a really important point that most people who use mechanical equipment don't uh, take into consideration is giving the coffee that opportunity to rest, equilibrate, and then turning it on again and, and drying very slowly, but in a machine. No, it's funny you say that because um, just going off hunches, um, just visually assessing what we were doing. Um, um, so we had access to a mechanical dryer for a couple of weeks this season and um, didn't get to use it much. And I also didn't want to sort of risk it until I knew exactly what I was doing. And we got a bit lucky with um, the sunlight at that time as well. So it wasn't really a necessity, but um, with um, the whole cherry went the naturally processed coffees and I thought about drying them. And two things that struck my mind is that one is the sort of variation in ripeness and I feel like they could react differently to the heat possibly and that's why I agree that dropping them in immediately after you harvest and then ferment them wouldn't be the best idea. And I feel like also... Um, they're very susceptible because what we've noticed now is um, with the thunderstorms that I mentioned, it's become almost like a monthly occurrence, unfortunately. And um, so what happened for us um, is that not just our drying yards um, took a battering, but um, the plants themselves also absorbed this sudden moisture and then started to split and fall. And so um, clearly they're very sensitive to moisture and anything around it. So I using that logic i thought that maybe if too much heat is applied when there's too much moisture it's going to split the, the cherry as well and so i think they would probably be quite sensitive in that sense and so maybe 
drying it out for maybe five days in the sun and then dropping it down drastically in a couple, maybe eight to 16 hours, like you mentioned, that could be the way to go. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Thank you for mentioning that because yes, you have these cherries that have what moisture content of 45%, like they're, they're very wet. They've got the, especially like you're mentioning after a thunderstorm when they may have soaked up even more um, water from, from the soil. And then, yeah, when you heat water, it expands. And so <laughs> on top of that, you, you're, which we mentioned earlier was the cellular structure can be very delicate. And so if you're applying a lot of heat to the high moisture, you could be, you know, rupturing some of that cell structure. And then again, leading to weaker structure, easier coffee that fades more quickly and doesn't have that, that shelf life and that longevity. So that was a really good instinct. So I think that, no, I think that helps. And I think going forward is a sort of way to go, but I want to do it systematically. I don't want to jump the gun, rush it. There's labor issues and a lot of things involved with this. And so it could definitely be something that we have to not really resort to, but turn to in a sense. And um, I think a lot of us in, in, in India in particular can do with sort of learning the basics and then applying it to specialty and processes and then Finally, um, the reward is complexity in the cup, which I don't think we had before when we used um, mechanical dryers. Cool. Do you have another question about drying or naturals? Something that I've been thinking about and sort of pondering over um, over the course of the season is um, fruit fermentation. And it's a big trend now where you actually add um, pieces of, uh, chopped pieces of fruits to your ferment tanks and things like that. And for me, I didn't sort of venture into it because it's adding variables, you know. I don't know what's being broken down. I don't know, is my coffee cherry, is it being broken down? Are the microbes working on that or is it working on the slice of watermelon, you know? And um, so I kind of avoided it in that sense, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, so I'm um, I'm pretty agnostic about adding fruit to your fermentation. Um, I think a lot of people have very strong feelings about it's it's cheating and it's not fair. And then other people think that it's, um, you know, very regional dependent and could be part of the culture. Um, for me, my biggest concern for a producer from a production standpoint is that it's very difficult to replicate because exactly like you said, you are adding a, a really big variable. You're adding a whole other fruit that has its own ripeness and its own microbial um, kind of colonies on its skin and different sugar source. So you can have really great results, but then how do you replicate those if if you do have really great results? And it can be difficult to build a relationship long term with a supplier, uh, with a yeah, with a client that way to say, oh, you love that coffee. I don't know how to do it again. And you can you know have maybe some trust issues. But in in terms of um, what you mentioned, I think that. It's a really good point that most people don't usually think about is if you have um, you have your coffee cherry and maybe you're adding something like pineapple or mango, those are incredibly concentrated sugar sources and those are very rich and it's way more attractive to a yeast to feast on a mango than to feast on coffee cherry. So you're right, you could inadvertently be kind of draining or siphoning off the resources from the cherry and you're kind of focusing it on... Uh, fermenting the mango, but not fermenting the the cherry. And so if that happens, you're 
fully fermenting your mango, your coffee fermentation could actually be a little bit slower and the mucilage could not completely dissolve and make it really difficult to wash and make it really difficult to dry. So it's uh, very difficult from a mechanical point of view. So I generally don't recommend it just because like I, my philosophy and my style is like, just keep it simple and like, don't make yourself problems when it's already a difficult process. And I think adding fruit, while it could have really good results and some people have a lot of success with it, it's just a very difficult way to get flavor differentiation. But it's very available. It's very inexpensive. So I see why it's very, it's tempting for a lot of people who don't have other options to try that. So if you really don't have any other options to differentiate your coffee, I say try some fruit. But I think, you know, you have other options. You have uh, a lot of ideas. And I think that that's a difficult way to to go forward, if that makes sense. I think my logic also with the fruits themselves is that if you chop them up, it's easier access for the microbes. Yeah, you're working through a barrier of the skin. And I feel like, okay, if you're putting like a, like you said, mangoes, you put a whole mango in there, maybe it's an equal battle in a sense for breaking through. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's the logic I use. And also, from what I've seen, also another sort of, in the specialty side of things, um, a sort of drawback for me is I've actually seen seeds, you know, like a watermelon seed or an orange seed actually end up in the final cup and then you instantly obviously fail different parameters. And so it's just too many variables for me. And so I have sort of kept away from it until and unless I know exactly what I'm working with and how I can sort of direct this sort of um, breakdown of sugars to the mucilage or the, um, the skin itself. And um, up until that point, I think, yeah, you're right. Just I'm going to keep it sort of simple and um, head, head that way. Well, you make another really good point in that like, there's a first issue that whatever yeast and bacteria are available in the fermentation or in the environment are going to preferentially ferment the higher reward fruit. So they're going to preferentially ferment the mango or the pineapple or, you know, uh, whatever berries or anything else that you're putting into into the tank. But in addition to that, the other thing that you mentioned that a lot of people don't think about is that then you have to separate them out again when you're trying to dry your coffee and you're adding two, <laughs> maybe more steps to uh, either like filter out the fruit pieces or if you have a really small fruit, having their seeds go in there. And so and seeds, as we know, can be very bitter. And so you can be um, inadvertently lowering your quality in a different way. So that is a lot, a lot of work that a lot of people don't think about. And I also think about that a lot when I'm seeing some processes now in coffee where people are, and I think this is from a winemaking technique, where they're pulping. So they're separating the skins from the, the parchment, from the pulped coffee, but then they're adding the skin back in. They're adding the cascada back into the fermentation to get extract more either pulp or sweetness or you know characters from from the from the cascara and I'm not a huge fan of that method either of putting the cherry skins back in I mean we separated them for a reason um, mostly because the skins have a lot of anthocyanins and anthocyanins are phenolic compounds and it's very rare in coffee that you want more phenolic compounds <laughs> in your coffee um, in addition then you're giving yourself that extra step of like now you have to take those take that cascada out again and that can be quite a headache and then if it makes it through to the final coffee like you said you can really reduce your cup and and have some defects in that way so i really hope people will 
reconsider some of the things that they're adding to the tank and just think about the long term. Like it's easy to do if you're making a nano lot or a micro lot, but then think about if you have success with this, you're going to have to do this on one ton, two ton on these like really large scales, which is hard to replicate. It makes me think of, I wish I could remember who said this. It was some artist who said, never sing a song that you don't like because what happens is it'll end up becoming a giant hit and then you're going to have to sing this terrible song for the rest of your life. (laughs) So I think about that. Like, think about your nano lots. Like, do you want to, if anytime you're designing a nano lot, I just think, do you want to do this with five tons of fruit? And if the answer is like, no, then why are you doing it in the nano lot? Yeah, to be honest, I learned that the hard way. That was me. 25 years of age when I was like, all right, let's do these experimental processes with black honeys and all of that. And then as soon as you upscale it to like one ton and above, it's a different ball game. And you're just, your your tanks are full, your yard is full, people are restless, you want to see end results. And so um, I agree, just not, not really keep it simple, but like know what you're doing and sort of be in control of it or is as in control of it as you can be, I think. Yeah, when it's really small, it's it's easy to have a lot of enthusiasm and it's like really interesting to have these experiments. But then when you think about, okay, if I'm going to do this on two tons, it stops being fun really fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually made me think of something else and a problem that we have to deal with. And so um, something I've been thinking about a lot is um, how um, India is, South India in particular, the terrain and topography um, of where we grow coffee is incredibly inclined and a few blocks actually go up to maybe 65 or 70 degrees and so it's it's quite steep you know and we get our most experienced staff to actually manually harvest from those bushes and so um that's something we're going to have to face and so with increasing um skill labor issues and um, with people wanting to go into what we it's just towns and cities really um um, what we have to do now is because of um, when you ask me the scale of uh, the plantation that I run, um, it's quite large, you know, and it's quite unusual for, I'm sure, compared to a lot of producers worldwide. And um, But it is the case. It's something that we're sort of just, it's normalized over here. And so um, what we have to do and what I'm seeing a lot of people do now is um, wild selective harvesting, maybe the third round of harvesting has to be a strip and um, or sometimes just green only. And so I know in India for a fact, like um, a lot of that coffee has to go to um, the lower levels or the lower grades of coffee at the commodity level. And so there's still buyers, we still roast them, uh, sorry, we still sort of dry them on the patio and eventually sell them when they come to a certain moisture rate. But I wonder how it got me thinking because also in a few um, uh, a few nano lots and micro lots this year where I didn't oversort. I actually got a bit of complexity when they were not greens, but like semi-greens, half-greens almost. And um, so on that note, I was wondering in terms of um, the green cherries, like completely green, un- unripe or raw cherries, is there anything that we could, obviously, maybe not in terms of specialty, but can we gain or increase complexity or sort of have anything improve upon the way? Or is it nothing at all because i know it's a big thing that india is dealing with and it's going to be a bigger and bigger issue that's a tough question um i think that's also not something that i've had to look into uh how to improve green like straight up green uh coffee cherries i think 
Uh, I don't want to say that there's nothing that can be done. I'm just not sure what has been invented at this point. Because if you have a green coffee cherry, it is undeveloped, right? So it hasn't had the opportunity to develop sugars, uh, to change color, to to really accumulate any complexity. So the green outside is kind of giving you a signal that it's giving, it's a signal in nature that it's not ready, that it's not ready yet. So I think that maybe it's less about how do we get these green coffee seeds to be more complex or interesting like the riper cherries and, and how do we find a different use for them? So instead of kind of like the approach with Robusta, like Robusta doesn't, it shouldn't be Arabica, like it is a different thing. So it shouldn't try to be something else. So I think maybe some kind of approach with the green cherries of, you know, what, what do they have a lot of, what are they doing well already and creating a market, creating a new product. Um, I think every coffee bean has a home. It's just matching it with, with its destination. So I think that is also a really difficult battle. Like if you're a coffee producer and you have a lot of green cherries, trying to make them not be green cherries, you're going to like be banging your head against the wall for a long time. So I think we need to come up with a different solution that isn't wanting them to be something else. So it's unfortunately a not satisfying answer, but I do have hope that a lot more people in coffee are innovating and are creating new areas. I think maybe they could be used for caffeine extracts, you know, some other avenue. Sure. Yeah, no, the, the analogy I like, we have four cabins on the plantation as well. So we get a fair few guests, especially during harvest season and it's peak travel season. So the analogy I use for a green coffee cherry is an avocado. It's not, it's hard, it's undeveloped, it's not rich, it's not soft, it's not appealing in any possible way. But um, I see that more and more now. It's just a shame because I feel like, yes, I'm young and yes, I'm into this, but like a lot of people don't know that yet. And either the, the stripping where everything mixed together or the green coffee is a large chunk of what you've harvested. And so that's a real shame, but fair enough. I, I agree that there's not much to work with at the foundation level. And so it's difficult to sort of gain complexity from there, I feel. Yeah, it's kind of a shell. I mean, it could be something where there can be a lot of additives to it. Maybe like it could be like a baseline and there's all kinds of interesting coffee, you know, creamers or milks or things that you can add to kind of like mask the flavor of coffee. But in terms of bringing up those green cherries, I, I don't know anything at the moment. Fair enough. I think I've got just like one more question and it's probably to do with... Okay. Um, India itself and the sort of unique, again, the unique sort of growing conditions. And so I know you've talked about terroir a lot and it's a big, it's a buzzword in coffee now, or at least it appears to be. And um, something that I'm sort of trying to map together is sort of how intricate uh, the, the terroir that we're dealing with as our plantation as an origin. And so because we not just grow coffee, which is often intercropped, with Arabica and Robusta, for example, but we have avocados and jackfruits and um, guavas and all kinds of citrus. And so with that comes huge, intricate, complicated mycorrhizal networks below the surface of the ground. Um, so many different factors. And so it's something that I've sort of, is there something that we could 
basically be overlooking. I know we look at bricks a lot, we look at pH a lot when it's in the ferment tanks, but when it's at the sort of harvest level or anything like that because of a complicated or complex system or agricultural system, is there something in particular we could look at or maybe are overlooking? So are you saying that because of all of the different crops that are grown in conjunction or grown next to coffee, that that is having a, or what we don't know what kind of influence that's having? And is there a way to measure that? Is that the question? Uh, so I know it's having an influence. I don't know. I know in terms of maybe immunity and also in terms of the cup itself, when you're talking about flavor, just the exchanges with whatever's going on around it. But is there something that I could be looking at, like say if we're planning to harvest in a plot a day before, uh, I'm actually in that plot the day before we're meant to harvest, is there something I could look at or prepare for apart from just bricks and the color level of um, the cherries themselves. Are you tracking any of the disease? Uh, like what are some of the biggest plagues that you have in India? So in terms of diseases and pests, we got the white stem borer, which is ravaged us. Um, we've got leaf rust and recently berry borer, but then we're also dealing with like herbivores as well, but that's a different sort of um, different ball game in a sense. But um, yeah, I would maybe, yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe pests and diseases and tracking that would make a bit more sense. Well, because I'm thinking if you have some of those pests, but you also have other crops around, that's sort of like a, a distraction and saying like, leave the coffee alone and maybe go over there. And so that's something that you would actually measure not uh, in harvesting or even in uh, processing. That would be after when you've dried the coffee and you're looking at the green at the green seeds and you're doing some green analysis and green grading. So what I like to do here in Colombia is um, I'll do UV analysis. So like after my coffee is dried and I get moisture content and water activity, then I'll take a hundred gram sample of the green coffee and then just do a general UV light and see how many are fully glowing, how many are partially glowing. Um, I also like to look at density. And so it could be that maybe the, the coffees that are planted with more diverse crops could have higher density because they're getting more nutrients. They're kind of in the symbiotic relationship. They're sharing with the other uh, with the other trees. I don't know. Uh, it could also be that you see lower insect and, and lower, um, you know, broca damage in those because the insects are distracted or they have other place to lay their eggs. So something that you could notice after the fact in your green grading. Okay, fair enough. I think, yeah, no, I think, yeah, it's it's things are just picking up now in India and I feel like it's, it's a lot that we don't know and we don't have access to and so I feel like this sort of information would definitely go a long way for a lot of us and sort of make a difference as we venture into this. If you start to keep like an Excel sheet of, you know, the coffee, where it was planted, kind of what it was planted next to and then some of these green results, then over time, like it's something that you'd have to have a baseline and say, you know, maybe the trees that are closer to avocado or have a higher uh, avocado neighbors um, behave differently in the green seed. You know, it's it's something that you could start to develop uh, over time. We're actually seeing that with figs in particular. So there's a certain genus of figs that's indigenous to India. And so they get ancient. We have some 400-year-old fig trees. And so 
under what we call the drip circle of the the tree itself we've got like several plots of um, coffee arabica and so I feel like they're very healthy because obviously for one the fruits are dropping so then there's birds and then in the mornings you get wild boar and deer and all kinds of things which in turn poop out um, very nutritious um, things back into the soil and so um, well, and I imagine the tree, the figs must be very tall, so they're also providing shade. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very biodiverse and sort of ambient. And so it's not too hot, it's not too cold. And of course, you need to stress the plants out certain times a year. But um, it seems to be working in something we have to use in our favor, I feel. That's really cool. Yeah, I think that, you know, in that sense, um, in that context, terroir makes sense in that you have these particular indigenous native um, crops that are also contributing to the coffee story, either by the birds that they're uh, hosting, by the fruit that is getting, you know, falling off the tree, kind of rotting, getting back into the soil and then providing even more nutrients and things. I think that's very cool. Awesome. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for sharing oh, pleasure. India pleasure with, with the podcast. No, thank you. I just want to say thank you so much. It's been, honestly, I started listening to your podcast a couple of years ago while I was sitting at the beach and to be on this now is pretty surreal. And so um, nah, I hope it paves the way for a lot more producers to get involved because it's just it's just there. The world is the our oyster. And so um, we um, thank you for the guidance and so sharing your knowledge as well. Oh, it's my pleasure. Do you want to tell us where, if anyone wants to learn more about your coffee, maybe ask for a sample, anything like that, where we can send them? Sure. Um, yeah. So the coffee, you can reach out to us. It's Kere Haklu is the name of our plantation. Um, yeah, I'll put it up somewhere. but um, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put your Instagram oh, on the show notes and the website. Well, you can shoot us an email through our website. I'm pretty active or probably too active on Instagram and I can take it from there, but um, we're just in the midst of sending samples around the world. And um, yeah, if you'd like to get one from um, us in South India, I'd be happy to provide one. Perfect. Yeah, you have a really great Instagram. You have beautiful pictures and you share a lot. So I think that's a really great resource for people. Thank you. Thank you, Lucia. Well, best of luck and I will talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Looking forward to this. See you later. This conversation sparked a few things that I want to talk about further, like Robusta and other ways to jazz up the tank. But I think those are going to have to be separate episodes, and that's all the time that we have for today. Thanks to Pernoy for generously sharing his world. Thanks to the patrons that keep me motivated to make new episodes, and thanks to my partner Nick for his tireless patience. If you want to be notified when a new episode comes out, join my infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. That's L-U-X-I-A dot coffee. I promise I send about one a month at most, maybe twice a month. And if you sign up, you'll get a chance to see pictures related to the episodes. If you're looking for more coffee learning, check out the Eaker podcast hosted by Thule. Eaker is E-C-R-E. They're a co-roasting facility and coffee academy based in Sydney, Australia. I was recently interviewed for this podcast, so you can listen to that, but my favorite episode is called Decoding the Coffee Genome with Professor Michele Morgante. Professor Morgante is a full professor of genetics at the University of Udine in Italy and a scientific director of the Institute of Applied Genomics. 
It's a really cool conversation for coffee nerds that really want to go deep into the science of the coffee genome. All right, that's it. See you next time. And remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee. Thank you.